0: Well, I want to echo what Matt said at the beginning of the service uh, in the introduction. He talked about the fact that he's been in mourning since we ended this series of messages on Acts. And I almost always feel that way, particularly at the end of a really long series, and that was 35 weeks. But I feel like, you know, I collected up this handful of friends that I just had to go, I guess we're done. You know, that's it. We're done. But the wonderful thing about the Bible is that, hey, there's always that next really amazing, amazing passage of Scripture to now turn to. And to now continue and to now study. The Bible is an incredible book, guys. It is a living book. It is God's word to you. And it is the primary vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to mold you, to shape you, to speak to you, to lead you, and to guide you. And I hope that you've come to understand that as you take that book and open it up. And as one of his children, begin to read it, begin to study it for yourself. And so today, since we finished up Acts last week, today we're going to start a new series, a new study, but here's the deal. If you're kind of on the spiritual train that is Rio Vista Community Church, you already knew that. And here's how you knew that. You knew that because at about 12.01 a.m. on Monday morning, so I hope your phone was like on vibrate or a different room, you got an email and what did it say? It said, here's the passage of scripture in this amazing book this week that you're to open up and study in your personal worship. You're like, wait a minute. A, how do I get the email? You go to the website, you sign up and it sends it to you just like automatic. It's magic. B, what is personal worship? Well, that's on the website too, and it's also in the email. It is a way of studying the scriptures prayerfully, meditatively, reflectfully, even writing down thoughts and questions and ideas and impressions and things that you feel like God is communicating because He communicates. He communicates. It's a way not merely of mastering the material, but of having the material master you. Of not only coming to know what it is that God says in this particular passage of Scripture that we've assigned and that you're in all week long, but of coming to know what God is saying to you personally, as an individual follower, as a son or daughter of Christ, your king. So if you're on the train, well, you got the email and you know that we're going to be studying through the Sermon on the Mount. We're doing that in our personal worship time. And then we're going to get together on Sunday. And what do we do on Sunday? Well, we bring our Bibles, right? Okay, yeah. So anyway, we bring them, we put them on the table, figuratively speaking, and they fall open to the same passage of Scripture that we've been studying individually all week long. And then when we're done here, what do we do? Well, if you're plugged into a community group, you go meet with your community group. And it might meet later today or Monday or Tuesday or some other time during the week. But the idea is then all of you guys sit around a table, put the Bibles on the table, and they all at the same time fall open to that same place in the Bible. And what do you get to do there? You get to interact. It's kind of awkward if you ask me a question now, but you can do it there. You bring your questions. You bring your concerns. You bring your hopes, you bring your fears, you, you bring those things that you don't understand and the things that you understood really, really well, but it's scary you have to death. And in community with other people who are committed to this same process of spiritual growth, okay, you learn to live those things out. So here's the deal. If you got the email and even if you didn't, this morning, we're going to begin a study of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever delivered, any anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And by far, there's not even a second place, really. It's like the Sermon on the Mount, and then that's pretty much it. And we're calling the series Blessing and Mission. And we're calling it blessing because contrary to what you might be tempted to think as you actually begin to dig into the Sermon on the Mount, like I find that people go, oh, you're studying the Sermon on the Mount. That's awesome. And I think to myself, when did you read it last? Because I'm not so sure you'd be so excited. It is challenging. It really is. And yet contrary to what you might be tempted to think as you begin to dig into it, as you begin to master it, and it begins, I hope, to master you, What Jesus describes for us in this sermon that we're going to spend six weeks studying and then invites us into, and it's an invitational message. Well, it's the truly blessed life. It's different than what we might define as the truly blessed life, but it is in fact the truly blessed life. And then here's the other part. It's blessing and mission because it's also the kind of life that takes the otherwise invisible Jesus. And that's what he is in this world right now, isn't he? You can't go to his office. You can't take a picture of him on the street like paparazzi. You can't send him a text message or an email or call him on the phone. You don't catch cameos of him on CNN or whatever. He's invisible to the world, but he's made visible to the world when you begin to live out this sermon. Oh, then he's really visible, powerfully visible and transformationally visible. And what I want you to see this morning as we enter into just the first part of the sermon is that that kind of blessed life that Jesus will describe and invite you into every week for these six weeks Okay, it begins with a genuine and authentic relationship with Jesus. It starts with you and Jesus in relationship, and then it spreads out into the rest of the world. And I know maybe some of you got the email, 1201. You did your personal worship this week, so you're all excited. And you're thinking, hey, you know, I thought I mastered the material. I'm not really sure where you got that, Tom, because, you know, maybe you sent the wrong passage, because what I studied this past week leading up to today's message were the Beatitudes. It's those eight statements of blessing that Jesus makes. Blessed are the... That's it. And that's true. But what is Jesus describing with these eight Beatitudes? What is he describing? Because here's what he's not describing. He's not describing eight different kinds of people. He's not saying, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really love those guys. Really unique group of people. They're awesome. Let's put them over here. And then blessed are those who mourn. Not the life of the party. Not going to lie. Little bit weepy. Really significant to me, nevertheless. Let's put them over here. And then blessed are the meek. Like if there was a sign-up sheet in the back and you could just sign up. I want to be meek. How many men here today would sign that? Okay, look, none of you. (laughs) Brutal. You know, we do have coffee before the service, so. I will tell you plainly, I long to be meek. Rightly understood. But it's not its own unique category. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, well, great. And those are a different... No. It is a coherent whole. It's all tied together. It begins and ends with the same promise. You'll hear it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not describing eight different kinds of people. He's describing one kind of person. And I hope at least that you'll see how all of these things cohere and make sense and come together as one organic whole. And I hope as well that when they come together as an organic whole... That person they describe as you. They describe someone in relationship with Christ. We begin our study today in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. No, that was not in the email. But it is where Matthew sets up this sermon by telling us this. He says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee. Galilee is an area in northern Israel that had all kinds of little towns and villages in Jesus' day. Still does. And the idea is he's going from town to town, village to village, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, meaning of the kingdom of heaven or of the kingdom of God, which, by the way, is a kingdom that we know from Scripture will one day encompass all of the heavens and all of the earth. It will fill everyone. It will fill everything. But here's the question. Today it's supposed to fill you. Does it fill you? It's a kingdom in which one day everything will be made new, but today offers to make me new and you... It's a kingdom which is defined primarily by the reign and rule, the governance. It's a king dominion, if you will. It's not geographically bound. It speaks of the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, who will one day reign and rule in some sense. Overall, in other words, all will experience, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess willingly that Christ is king. But today, that's my confession That's your confession in the midst of this world, or at least it's supposed to be. Matthew says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee with all its little towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing, notice this, every kind of disease. Every kind of disease and every kind of affliction among the people, thus sending the message to the people and to us today that he also has the power to heal every kind of sin. Sickness and disease are the emblems of sin. They're the byproducts of sin. And Jesus went about healing the worst of them all and even raising the dead. What is he saying? There's nothing that you've done. There's no pit into which you have descended. There is no death that you have taken into your life that I cannot heal, raise, forgive you of. Notice the claim here. Matthew says, and so, as you might imagine, his fame spread throughout all Syria, which is just north of Galilee, and they brought to him again all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons and epileptics and a common cold. No, paralytics, paralytics. I thought this week, you know, if that wasn't actually true, I don't think Christianity would have ever gotten off the ground. Because these are the core documents of Christianity. These are the claims of the gospel. And these claims were made in the days of the very people who themselves were witnesses to these healings and some of which were themselves healed. Think about that. I mean, if somebody today published some kind of an article or some kind of a magazine or wrote some kind of a book making all kinds of truth claims that everyone who were not in fact true, how much attention do you think it would get? How fast do you think that movement would take off? On its face, it would fail. Look, Jesus did this. He preached the kingdom and he healed All those afflicted with diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and even paralytics, my goodness. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, which were ten big cities. It means literally the ten cities. And from Jerusalem and Judea, do you feel the momentum? And from beyond the Jordan to the east, the idea here being that people are flocking to Christ from all directions and in great crowds. And so then Matthew tells us, chapter 5, verse 1, that upon seeing these crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain to preach His sermon on the mountain. What struck me about that, and I've never thought of this before, and I've looked at this passage like a thousand times probably, is the only people who got to hear this message are the ones who made the effort to climb up the mountain to hear it. Like there was the massive crowd, Jesus up there, and people going, I think I want to hear this. I'm willing to ascend or not. I think that's going to be true for us as well. Now, look, you're not going to have to go and literally ascend the Mount of the Beatitudes. Even if you go to Israel with us, you won't. You just ride the bus. It's awesome. Just right up the top. It's great. That's the way I prefer to climb. Not going to lie. You won't have to do that, but you will have to scale the Mount of some of your own attitudes. I will say that. You will have to scale the reality of some of the things that you think about, some of the things that you've said or say, some of the habits with which you engage and indulge. Your motivations, your passions, your actions. Look, this is an intense sermon that Jesus gives. It does spiritual surgery. It really does. It unmasks you. It undresses you. It leaves you utterly exposed before Him. It does. And it leaves you with nowhere to run but to Him and nowhere to hide but in Him, which is just a different way of saying it leads you into the blessed life. The blessed life that He talks about in this sermon and invites you to. It's invitational. Well, it starts with you and Jesus. It begins an authentic relationship with Him. And then it takes Him, and through your life, it makes Him visible to everybody in your life. Matthew says, "In seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, which incidentally, just saying, is the way the teachers in His day taught. So, when He sat down, His disciples, the people who cared enough to make the climb, came to him, and he opened his mouth, and then out of his heart he taught them what he will now teach us. Saying, blessed, first of all, are the poor in spirit. Now don't miss this, because you're going to hear this again, okay? This is the promise at the beginning of the Beatitudes, and it is the promise at the end of the Beatitudes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom that we've said will one day fill all the heavens and all the earth, but today is to fill us. We'll one day make everything new, but it makes you new now. Now. And in which the reign of Christ will be experienced ultimately by everyone everywhere and all at the same time. But today is to be experienced by me and by you, by everyone who claims Jesus. Those in a genuine and authentic relationship with him. And so Jesus says, look, blessed are the poor in spirit. And here's the poverty that he's referring to. It's not a financial one. He's not coming and saying, blessed are those who are financially bankrupt. He's saying, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and who know it because everyone's spiritually bankrupt. The question is whether or not you know it. He's saying, blessed are those who, by God's grace, who who at the work of God's Spirit have seen the stinking mass of their sin and realize that it's just this ever-increasing debt to God and have noticed as well that there is not one thing in the world that they could ever possibly do to begin to even think about repaying it. They are bankrupt, hopelessly, spiritually, not in front of our culture. Not in front of our friends. Not in front of our family. But in front of the only one who matters in this conversation. In front of a pure and holy and righteous and perfect God. He's saying, look, blessed are those who actually recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. And here's what they then do. It's automatic. They mourn. For he says in verse four, blessed are those who mourn. They're all tied together. For they shall be comforted with what? Incidentally, with the blood of Christ, with the forgiveness that can only be found In Him, And so with that in mind, I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time that you genuinely mourned over your sin? And not just as a result of some consequence that your sin created for you in life. So you disobey your parents, they take away your video games, and you're just crushed, right? And you mourn, because that is actually a big deal, depending on how old you are. You speed on your way to work, you get pulled over, you get a ticket, it's a drag, so you mourn. That's not what I'm talking about. Your wife gets up in the middle of the night, and she realizes you're not laying there right now. She's seen this act before, so she sneaks. And she catches you looking at porn on your computer for the 85th time. This time she leaves. And you mourn for yourself. Or maybe for her. Or maybe for your family. And that's, that's worth mourning about, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, when was the last time you looked at the, the pile of of the debt of your sin and mourned for what it is before God. We're grieved in your heart that this exists in His presence. And I ask you that because the promise is pretty sweet. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I'll tell you what else they shall be made. They shall be made meek, they shall be humbled, they shall gain a right appraisal of themselves. Jesus then says, blessed are the meek. This is verse 5. For they shall inherit the earth, and meekness is not weakness. It's a, if it's a sign-up sheet in the back, you want to be on it. Should be a line out the door and down the street. It's this marvelous blend of humility and selflessness that allows you to take your eyes off you and put them on other people, that allows you to begin to think more about other people than you do yourself, that allows you to place the interests of other people above your own interests. And here again, what enables you to do that? It's the glorious recognition that though you are spiritually bankrupt, through faith in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven and nothing less is yours as a gift. Coupled, I think, with the experience of the comfort in Christ that is yours by His blood, In the depths of your sorrow, it rushes in to rescue you from the pit. In the depth of your mourning over your sin. Which on the one hand, so humbles you that the only direction for you to look in life is up. Up at God and even up at others. And on the other hand, so supplies your needs. Your need for forgiveness. Your need for identity. Your need for ego. That you're able to be generous having had your needs met in Christ, and infinitely so, you're able to say, you know what, let me just focus on somebody else here for a while, because I'm good. So blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, the authentically broken, and the genuinely humbled. But blessed also, verse 6, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice the words, hunger and thirst. So they don't just want it. They wouldn't just kind of like to have it if, you know, sort of it worked out. If you don't get what you hunger for physically, you die. If you don't get what you thirst for physically, you die. That's what Jesus is drawing on. He's saying, hey, whoa, wait a minute. There is something called righteousness, which these blessed people hunger and thirst for because they realize in their spiritual bankruptcy and their mourning and brokenness over their sin and in their humility before God and even before man that they don't have any of and that they need it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, notice, for they shall be satisfied by the righteousness of Jesus. I love these promises. He doesn't, you know, say things like for most of the time, they might experience momentary moments of like, you know, comfort. They shall be comforted. Boom. They shall be satisfied. Bam. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied in Jesus. And here's what will happen. They will then be made merciful. It will show up in their life in mercy. It will gender in their hearts Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, he says, for they shall receive mercy. And here again, what makes you merciful if not the recognition first that you yourself are a needy person? So in other words, it's the recognition of your own spiritual bankruptcy that allows you to identify with other spiritually bankrupt people and then extend mercy to them. Compassion to them. It's your brokenness over your own sin that allows you to identify with and to show mercy to people who themselves are trapped in sin. It's the recognition of who you really are in and of yourself, like real low. And of who you really are in Jesus. Needs supplied. Fully. Identity established. Forgiveness given. Ego properly appraised that allows you to be merciful and to care more about the needs of other people even than of yourself. And it is your own hunger and thirst for righteousness and the satisfaction of that hunger and thirst that you experience in Jesus that compels you in mercy to lead other people to Him as well. But our Lord's not done. He's not yet finished with His description of those who have a genuine and authentic relationship with Him. For He then says this, Blessed are the pure in heart. Okay, okay. Can you you make your own heart pure? No, I mean, that's why we freak out. We can do, we just can't undo. (laughs) We can make dirty, we're good at that. We cannot make clean. We're made clean by the righteousness of Jesus, by the blood of the One who shed His blood unto death for us. Blessed are the... Pure, for they, and the implication is, and only they shall see God. That's a sweet promise. That's a pretty amazing thought. That's glorious. He says, then, blessed are the peacemakers... Those who through Jesus have experienced peace with God. See, he removes this stinking pile of, you know, stuff that stands between you and God and affects peace with God and you. That's the idea. That's the work of Christ. That's the gospel. And then he goes on and says, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, how is that? Have you guys ever seen my son? so funny. My wife was working in the fellowship hall one day a couple of years ago, and and my son was standing next to her, and somebody walked up and said, okay, you must be Tom's wife because that is Tom's son. (laughs) It's like mini-me, really, but better looking. It's startling. It's like that with parents, isn't it? Oftentimes. They shall be called sons of the peacemaking God, why? Because their face looks like His? No, because their life looks like His. Instead of being peace breakers, I guess, they're peacemakers. In their homes. In their offices. With their friends. Wherever. Last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, in just Jesus speaking, he's saying, look, when you start to live like me, when you start to look like me, don't be too surprised when you begin to experience maybe some of the things that I experienced, like rejection, persecution, difficulty, which is our privilege. Paul considered it a privilege to partake in the sufferings of Jesus. This is not an easy world to be a Christian in. It's not. And you won't be arrested around here for that, thankfully. But you will be ridiculed. You will be criticized. People will think maybe you're not the brightest bulb on the tree. Blaster you when that happens. And here's your gift for yours is the what? Because here it is again. It's the bookend. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Look, Jesus isn't describing eight different kinds of people. He's describing the person who has entered authentically into relationship with him. Guys, blessed. Blessed are you, if that's you. And then know this, you're to take him to the world. And he makes that clear in verse 13. See, after verses 11 and 12, which he just kind of uses to expand on the idea of persecution, give you other ways in which you could be persecuted. He goes on immediately in verse 13 and he says, look, you, meaning you who authentically belong to me, you who I just described in these Beatitudes. Okay, you are what? You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, listen, you are one of the many seasonings of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. That's coming from our king. So like now we've got to digest that. We've got to take that in and think about it for a minute. We've got to then look at our life and go, okay, okay, wait a minute. So what this means then is that I can't choose day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, perhaps even to look out for me and mine only. To live for me and mine alone while the rest of the world around me In my family or in my office or in my school or in my community or just the rest of the world, period, around me is rotting and falling apart. And I say that because when Jesus said this in the first century, salt was used primarily not for flavor, but as a preservative. It was used to keep things from rotting and falling apart. You are the salt of the earth. He says, You are the instrument that he wants to use, not just to bring flavor, that's great, but to preserve, to combat the rotting and the falling apart that's happening all around us. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, if if it doesn't work anymore, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so just in case we didn't get that, now he uses a different analogy. And he says, oh, oh, and also you are the light of the world, not a light, not one of the lights. No, no, no. There is exactly one light in all of the world. And it is, Jesus says, you. And he doesn't take a vote. He's like that. He's a king. He doesn't put his finger, you know, lick it and stick it up and see which way the winds are blowing and... Paul, people, do you think I could get away with this? He doesn't come to us and say, okay, look, here's the thing. I'm trying to get this whole Light of the World program up and running, and I was just wondering kind of, you, know, you know, if you just maybe think about, you know, maybe you as one of my people. Okay, well, let's review. As one of my people. Okay, so as someone who has been, by God's grace, awakened to their spiritual bankruptcy, as someone who has, by God's grace, looked at their pile of sin and genuinely mourned for its existence in the presence of Almighty God. Someone who by God's grace has been made humble. What a gift. Someone who by God's grace has not only learned to long for the righteousness of Jesus, for without it there is not life, but to be satisfied with it in overflowing infinite amounts. It's glorious. Someone who has known His mercy, someone who has has been the recipient of His purity, they've been made clean of that which they could never have made themselves clean of. Someone who knows what peace is because they know who Christ is, savingly. And someone for whom Jesus has been persecuted, who has suffered and literally has Died. He's coming to us and going, okay, that's who you are. All right, he's not saying, okay, please go to my website, you know, lightoftheworld.com, and opt in or out on the deal. He said, no, no, no. You're the light. That's it. No other program. And then he says, so get out and shine. And he uses an image that would be very powerful to them in that day a little less in our world of electricity. He says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. So now he's calling you to imagine a city that's been set, that's the key word, on a hill, purposefully placed on a hill. Cities didn't just spring up for no reason. They were they sprung up in places for certain reasons, and they put them on hills for reasons related to life. It's very strategically placed. And they built them out of limestone primarily, white stone with big walls And torches at night in a world with no electricity. So here is the city, and it's elevated so it stands above pretty much everything else. And in nothing but darkness, it's bright with light. He's saying, That's you. And you need to give some thought to the fact that you have been set in your family, not just to live, but to shine. You've been set in your office, not just to make a living and you know, and someday retire and no 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 to shine. Set in whatever gym you work out at, or you know, to shine. Where have you been placed? Because he's saying it's not by accident. And here's the mission shine. He says, You are the light of the world. There's no other light, so that's it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. So now he's talking about an oil-burning lamp in a home with no electricity and put it under a basket. You don't light it to hide it, but on a stand he's where you put it, and you place that thing strategically so that it throws as much light out in that home as as it possibly can, and it gives light to all in the house. All. In the same way he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, the way that you speak, the way that you live, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And they'll know that He's your Father because the resemblance will be clear. So the blessed life that we're going to be studying, that Jesus will describe and invite us into, is a life that begins with a genuine and authentic relationship with Jesus. It starts there. And then it emanates out into the world. So I want to close with that by asking you guys three questions and take them to heart. Number one, are you in a genuine and authentic relationship with Jesus? In other words, has the Spirit of God so operated and moved in your heart and mind and life that you went, aha, my culture is not the standard. My friends are not the standard. My family is not the standard. The perfectly holy and righteous God of the universe is the standard. And I'm spiritually bankrupt. Like, I got nothing. I have debt. (laughs) And I don't even have a job. Like, I'm undone. I'm ruined. Have you genuinely mourned over your sin, and not selfishly, but because of its offense to that God? And recognizing, you know what? He's sincerely offended. Has the gospel brought you so low that the only way for you to look is up? And have you, in fact, looked up and seen your Savior and so filled you that it's freed you to be generous? Have you hungered and thirsted for the righteousness that is only found in Jesus? For it's the only righteousness by which your debt can be satisfied, with which you can be comforted, made pure? Have you experienced his mercy, his purity, his peacemaking abilities between you and this God of the universe? Have you come to the one who endured persecution, suffering, death, burial, and then resurrection, which is pretty awesome, that he might purchase you? All right, well, if you have, then secondly, what around you is falling apart? It's rotting, it's stinking, it's falling apart, and it's really inconvenient. Our tendency when we see rotting, stinking, falling apart is roll up the windows, drive away. Good grief, get out the, you know, Lysol, and this is going to be messy. But wait a minute, there's one kind of salt in the world, spiritually speaking, and that would be, um, well... Well, that would be us. What's falling apart in your home that you're called to preserve or in your extended family or in your office or wherever? I mean, I don't need to play out the scenarios. I find the spirit just goes, hey, uh, you know, and then you're like, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. What an opportunity. What an opportunity to make Jesus visible. In that scenario, lastly, you ready? Who's living in darkness in your life? And have you thought about the fact that you are, key word, the white. You're the light. God has set you on purpose, strategic, strategically for matters related to eternal life in the life of that person. And here's the command. It's shine. It's shine. So we're going to be studying the blessed life and the missional life the next six weeks. And this life that Jesus will describe and invite us to is a wonderful life, guys. It's not easy. There's going to be some sweating involved, climbing up the mount every week, you know, or every morning if you're doing your personal worship. So go sign up for the email. Start to engage. Get on the spiritual bus that is Rio, if you will. Make the climb and find the blessed life. But it begins, know this, with you and Jesus. And then it emanates out into the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work to open up the eyes of our hearts. Lord, would cause us to be able to endure, frankly, the trauma of looking at the pile of our sin, this amassed debt that we have worked hard to amass and have no power at all to erase. Lord, let your spirit break our hearts. For you see it all. You smell it. You know all about it. God, make us to be humble, not proud. To stop comparing ourselves with everybody else and declaring ourselves therefore good when we're not. But to enter into the presence of an almighty, holy, perfectly righteous God and to realize our place. But let your Spirit also make us to see Jesus. The perfect son of God who lived that righteous life, who amassed a heaping, infinite amount of righteousness, not debt. And who freely on the cross took our debt and washed it away in mercy with his blood. Let us know peace with our father. Let us know purity by the blood of Jesus. Let us come in faith to the one who gave everything for undeserving us. And let us find him at this table. And then let us shine with his light. Let us preserve as his salt, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.